2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me pray for us one more time before we get into the word of the Lord together. Father, we are thankful for your work in this world by sending your son. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your death and resurrection in our place. And Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you have come and given us spiritual life. We do pray this morning that what we do here would be effective. And as we turn our attention to the word of the Lord now, God, we pray your Holy Spirit would take what we're learning and affect us spiritually by it. As we study this morning the deity of the Holy Spirit, I pray that it would be more than academic, that it would be spiritual, that the Holy Spirit himself would convict us through what we read, encourage us, the faint-hearted would be built up, the proud would be broken down, and that you, Holy Spirit, and your ministry uh, would be elevated even while we're studying it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in many ways, the deity of the Holy Spirit is the most questioned member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is often the forgotten member of the Trinity. Uh, he's the one that we, that we seldom talk about. He's the one that we, uh, I think, in many ways know the least about. He's certainly the most maligned in our culture as you see the charismatic movement growing and uh, churches incorporate this idea of being spirit-filled with charismatic utterances and and dancing and exuberant behavior, even music style or, or whatnot, and the, the Holy Spirit becomes less about God and more about, I don't know, how fast you clap while you're singing kind of thing. And that's why I think the Holy Spirit is in many ways the forgotten member of the Trinity. Now, we don't believe, of course, in tritheism. Tritheism is the heresy that there are three different gods. And Christians aren't tritheists. We don't believe in three different gods, but we are Trinitarian. We believe in one God in three persons. And it's helpful to distinguish that from some false teaching. There's the, uh, you know, the heresy of tritheism, as I mentioned earlier, three different gods. That's bad. There's the heresy of modalism. There's one God that appears in three different modes over time, or even three different persons, but those persons are sequential. So God appears as the Father first, then later as the Son, and then as the Holy Spirit. But those three are not co-eternal. They're not simultaneous. They're sequential, and that's also a heresy. There's the heresy that, that each member of the Trinity combined makes God, that almost each is one-third God. I call that the Voltron heresy. If you remember the Voltron cartoons, the robots that together made one big robot and it took them all being assembled. So that's not right. It's not like you take the Father and add the Son and add the Holy Spirit and together you get God. No, each, each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is God, has all of the characteristics, attributes, glory, worth, honor, and dignity of God, but in a personal form. The Father is a, is, is a person. The Son is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. But they're all persons with one being, the being of God himself. And I know that that's a complicated thing to get your, your mind around because there are no human analogies for it, really. Uh, there, there, just, there just isn't. And so oftentimes you run into to people that just don't want to talk or think about the Trinity. And I haven't run into that much at Emmanuel, but in the larger evangelical world, you can run into the, the kind of flow of, you know what, I believe that Jesus was God, and I believe that he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for my sins, and he rose from the grave, and if I put my faith in that, I'll be saved. So don't make this more complicated, okay? <laughs> Let me just be happy with, with believing the gospel and get on with my, my life. To which I say, 
I'm glad you brought up the gospel. That's a great point. <laughs> because I think the, the three different members of the Trinity, it's perhaps the easiest to understand them in terms of the gospel. And that's what I want to look at this morning. That's what this passage is about. As I mentioned, I think we do a great job of understanding the deity of the Father. I've never met uh, anybody who's denied, any, any Christian or any so-called Christian that's denied the deity of the Father. You know, it's not like there are those who believe that Jesus was God, but the Father we don't quite know about. I've never come run across that. So I think we, by and large, understand the deity of the Father. And I think in uh, evangelical churches, we understand the deity of, of the Son. And we understand that, that God became man, that it's not just God in a human body, but that God, the second person of the Trinity, added a human nature and was born in human flesh and made his dwelling among us, as John one begins. I think we have a good understanding of that. But it's when we run into the Holy Spirit that we run into troubled water. We don't often do a good job perceiving the Holy Spirit as a person or understanding Him as God. That in the same way the Father sent the Son, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit. In the same way the Son is the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is the spiritual representation of the third member of the Trinity. Again, that sounds like neat theology, but I don't want to coast along with neat theology this morning. I want to develop this from this passage this morning. Before we look at the text real quick, you have to understand that each three members of the Trinity, they're persons in their own right. They're all three God, but they're not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. It's not like where you see the Father, you can substitute the Son, or the Son, you can substitute the Spirit. Understand the Father is the one who sends the Son into the world. The Son does not send the Father into the world. The Father sends the Son. And that's fitting because He's the Father, of course. He, he's the, it's fitting that He would be the one that sends, and it's fitting the Son would be the one who is sent and born. Obviously, the, the Father wouldn't be born uh, to Mary, but it's fitting the Son would add a human nature, and it's fitting that the Son would lead an obedient life, and it's fitting the Son would die in, on the cross in our place, reconciling fallen mankind to His Holy Father. We understand that. But it's also fitting that the Son would ascend to heaven and the Father and the Son together would send the Holy Spirit. In the same way the Father is the one who sends and the Son is the one who goes, it's also fitting that the Holy Spirit would be the one who comes and ministers to our spirits. Do you see how all three members of the Trinity are involved in the gospel and are involved in ways in keeping with their own personal identity? The Father sends, the Son goes, and the Spirit dwells with us spiritually the spirit causes our spirit to come alive by placing us in christ we even refer to it as being born again are you spiritually born again it's the holy spirit who does that well this morning this passage we're looking at is in second corinthians chapter one and it's a very clear passage about the deity of the holy spirit and how god himself working through the holy spirit draws us to christ let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Now if you're reading the New American Standard, that can be a somewhat difficult passage to understand or to outline in your mind. So I wanted you to see the English Standard Version, at least in the screen. That's the version I'm going to be using this morning, the ESV version, says it this way, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And I, I like the way it describes that because the ESV moves the phrase, it is God, to the front of the sentence. That's how you would speak in English. You'd put the subject first. And 
So it makes sense this way. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So notice that this is a verse about God's work through the gospel in your spirit. How God is at work making you alive spiritually, placing you in Christ spiritually, promising you that he will bring you into glory. And he does this all through the Holy Spirit. This is often referred to by theologians as the covenant of redemption. The idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together before eternity began designed the plan of salvation and enacted it in time. That the Father would be the reconciler, the one who desires to unite fallen mankind to himself and so he sends his Son. That the Son would be the Redeemer who leads the sinless life, who dies a substitutionary death bearing our sin on the cross. And the Holy Spirit would be the agent of salvation, the one who draws us to himself. Now, as I, I mentioned, you see all three members of the Trinity at work in here. It, it is God who does this through Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I want you to see the four components of this verse. This verse can be a difficult one to outline. And so here's my attempt at it on the screen. So I'm, I'm showing you my homework. This is like the elementary school math problem where you have to show your work. This is my work here, okay? It is God. And notice the four things that God does in this verse. He establishes us. He anointed us. He's put his seal on us. And he's given us his spirit. Those are the four actions of the, the actor here at the beginning of the verse. That God who is has done this. The takeaway from this outline is that God is the initiator. God is the author of this salvation. God is the planner. God is the agent of redemption. You did not just stumble upon the gospel in your life. You didn't just happen into it. The gospel was not designed by, by people. It wasn't invented by a human committee. The gospel was designed by God. God is the one who wrote this. He's the author. God is the one who designed this. He's the, the speaker. God is the, the, the one who initiates us. He's the creator. He's the one that brings salvation to the world. He's the revealer. And we get that. I mean, it's not like people clamored for God to send us a redeemer and we climbed up to heaven and, and brought Jesus down. Of course not. God spoke to create the universe. In speaking, the Father sends his Son. The Son comes to us. The Word of God comes to us. And beyond all that, the Holy Spirit comes to us to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from the word of God who gives us spiritual life to believe. That's what God does. He is the revealer. Now, as I mentioned, there's four different phrases in here, four different um, actions of God. He establishes, anoints, puts a seal, and gives us his spirit. But really, they can be split into two because the first two are the same and the second two are the same. And eh, let me give you an example. You know, we often play basketball here on Sunday night with some friends. And if I were to tell you, you know, last Sunday night, I'm talking to the guys, I come to night and I win and I would say afterwards, you know, I single-handedly beat you all. I schooled you and I taught you a lesson. See, that's two different things. I schooled you and I taught you a lesson, but it's really the same thing. And then I would say, show up next week, see what happens. I promise I'll beat you again. See, that's two different things. Show up and see and I promise I'll beat you. It's really the same thing. And then I would wake up from my dream and it would be all over. <laughs> Basketball is not my thing. I could maybe recognize a basketball if it was alongside, I don't know, like a car and a piano, but 
It's about the extent there that I have with basketball. But the idea here is that you can have the same thing repeated. And it, it's two different things, but it's really the same thing. And you see this in this verse. God establishes us. How? By anointing us. God puts a seal in us. How? By giving us his spirit. Those are what the actions of the third member of the Trinity is in the gospel. Now, as far as the covenant of redemption goes, you understand chronologically the father first sends the son. The son second comes to earth and lives the sinless life, dies on the cross and rises from the grave. Third, the Holy Spirit comes to the earth and draws you to Christ. That's how you, it goes chronologically. But let's not say chronological because what Paul's dealing with here is the experiential nature of it. Do you understand that when you come to faith in Christ, the first member of the Trinity you encounter is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who saves you. In fact, let's look at that here as our outline as we're going to look at the two acts of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. First, the Holy Spirit starts our salvation. Our salvation, in a sense, we experience it first with Him. And this is fitting, of course. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you understand at the beginning of the Bible, the first member of the Trinity you meet is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 3, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the water. God created the heavens and the earth, and you don't meet the Father first, you don't meet the Son first, you meet the Holy Spirit first. And so it's fitting that in salvation it would be similar. That in salvation, the same one who says, let light shine into darkness, causes the light of the gospel of Christ to shine in your hearts. Paul writes that to the Corinthians, by the way. That same one would be the Holy Spirit that you encounter first. He begins your salvation. Now, how does he begin it? And that's where verse 21 comes in. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. God does this. Establishes the initiation here. He puts the foundation down. Now, Jesus is himself the cornerstone. The preaching of the gospel is the foundation. And yet God establishes us. He begins our spiritual life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He establishes us by anointing us, it says in verse 21. That word anointing, it's an Old Testament concept. Anointing is what prophets would do to a king to inaugurate him as a king. You know the story, of course, from uh, the, if you've been with us on Sunday nights going through 2 Kings, you remember how Elisha was sent to anoint Jehu to be king. Jehu was not in the line of the kings. Nobody expected him to be the king of Israel. He didn't descend from a king. He was just a military officer, but God wanted him to be king. And so Elisha came and separated Jehu from everybody, took him into a, a closet, could be the way he rendered, or a private room or, or whatever, and tells him you're going to be king. And then Elisha anoints him as king and leaves. <laughs> Jehu walks out, sees all the other officers, and they say, what did the prophet tell you? And he says, oh, you know, that guy don't trust anything he says. <laughs> And they say, no, what did he say? And Jehu says, well, he actually anointed me to be king. And everybody kneeled down and essentially declared, long live the king. They all recognized that at that moment he had become king. That's the, the concept of anointing in the Old Testament. When you're anointed king, you are king at that moment. The American equivalent might be inauguration. Our president is elected in November, not inaugurated until January. In the, the months that go, go by, he's the president-elect, but not the president. But at the moment of his inauguration, he becomes the president. He doesn't have to walk all the way to the White House, although he will. It's not that when he opens the door of the White House, that's when he becomes president. No, he becomes president at the moment of his inauguration, even before the speech. This is the concept of anointing. 
It establishes you. It initiates you. It brings you into a relationship with Christ. Now, how does God do this? By anointing you with his Holy Spirit. Romans 16, verse 25, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you, God is the one who does this to you. And he does this to you. The phrase in 2 Corinthians 1 is ice Christos. Not in Christos, which means in Christ, but he anoints you by bringing you ice Christos. Ice means into. In is just in. Ice is into. It's a change of location. We have that same concept in English. I, I walked into something or I went in there versus into there. The idea is that you, you've had a change of sphere now. Your new identity is in Christ. That the Holy Spirit by anointing you changes your, your spiritual identity, changes your spiritual location your spiritual status, who you are is changed by being brought into Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned, that does this. Even in the Greek, it's hard to see in the English, but in the Greek, there's a bit of a, a pun here. Messiah is the word Christos, which means the sent one. Of course, because he's the son of God, he would be the, the sent one. And then the Holy Spirit is charis. And so there's a pun here between Christos and charis, that you are, are, have been saved by the charis and placed into the Christos. You would say it like this, the anointed one and the anointed ones. That's how a Greek reader would read this. You've become the anointed ones by being placed into the anointed one, by being placed into Christ. And we've looked at this through the, it's the key theme in 2 Corinthians. Back in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, remember Paul describes this as happening on the cross where Jesus bears your sin. At that point, your identity in a sense is changed where your sin is taken from you even before you're born and placed onto Christ who suffers and dies in your place. And at the moment you exercise faith and place your faith in Christ, your identity is changed from this world into being in Christ. Your sin is removed and you have a new identity of being in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5. But we start way before that, back in chapter 1, where Paul says, by anointing you, the Holy Spirit has already done that to you. At the moment of your salvation, you are brought into a new relationship with Christ. And it's God who does this to you. Again, you didn't happen upon this. You didn't summon the Holy Spirit. He came to you. He started this in you. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused. He said, how can that be? Am I supposed to find my mother and be born a second time? Of course not. And Nicodemus isn't being silly. It's not like he thought that's what Jesus actually meant. He's just grasping. Nicodemus lived in a world without John 3.16 bumper stickers. So cut him some slack, okay? What am I supposed to do, Jesus? Be born again? What does that even mean? And Jesus tells him, you must be born of the Spirit. Flesh produces flesh, but the Spirit gives life. John 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wills, Jesus tells Nicodemus, and no one sees where it's, it's going. No one knows where it comes from. You don't even hear its sound. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You can't direct the Holy Spirit. He goes where he wants to go, but listen to this. Where he goes, he brings life. He brings spiritual life. This is a universal truth, my friends. If you are a Christian, it's because you have been born again. 
If you are a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit has caused you to exercise faith and love in Christ. He's drawn you to Christ. He's opened up your eyes. The one who said, let the light shine in the darkness has caused the light of his glorious gospel to shine into your hearts. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Every single believer has been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Every single believer has been baptized into Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. Every single believer has the promise, the anointing of the Holy Spirit and is partakers of the divine nature. The most immature believer is partaker of the divine nature because the divine Spirit of God dwells in him. And this is God who does this. It's God who does this. Last week in 2 Corinthians, we looked at the, the promise in actually from Hebrews 6 where God says if he's going to swear by something, he'll swear by himself. Because what's God going to make an oath by? If God promises he's going to save you, what's he going to promise by? He's going to swear by himself. There's no one more faithful than him. And that's what you see here in 2 Corinthians 1, that God anoints you with himself. He doesn't farm out or delegate out your salvation. He saves you himself, namely through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who starts our salvation. Well, secondly, the Holy Spirit also finishes our salvation. He doesn't just start our salvation. He finishes our salvation. And that's what you see in verse 22. The Holy Spirit, God is, through the Holy Spirit has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Puts his seal is, is another way of saying given us his spirit as a guarantee. He sealed us. Well, if anointing is an Old Testament concept, sealing is a Greek, a Roman concept. We looked at this back in Revelation uh, with the, the seven seals of Revelation, but the seals in the Roman world, you would write a will or a deed or a trust of some kind, and at the end of it, you would roll it up, you would seal it with wax and mark it with your signet ring. And that seal authenticated it. It meant that the, the, it was, that will was as secure as the identity is of the one who had his ring. You knew who wrote it because the will marked it. The seal marked it. You knew that it was trustworthy because it was sealed with the ring. You knew that it was valid because it was sealed. That's what happens to us in salvation, that God seals you. He marks you with his ring. He marks you with his own identity. How does he do that? By giving you his spirit. The American concept, we don't use seals. We've progressed beyond that. We use notaries. <laughs> And you know that if you've sold a house or maybe you've applied for like a line of credit or something like that, you apply for it and you go through all the documents and the appraisals or the home inspections or whatever is taken in selling your house and, and then all the papers get stacked up, marked with the thousand sticky notes where you sign and you go and you sign all of it. And then the, the banker gets it notarized. You present your ID and they check and yeah, and they notarize. And at the moment it's notarized, it's done. It's done. Now the money doesn't appear in your account when the stamp goes, right? It takes a few days for that to happen. But once the stamp goes, it's over. It's been notarized. You, it, it would take a judge to get involved. And since it was notarized, the judge probably would, would side with the notary. It's as good as accomplished. That's what's happening in our salvation. The Holy Spirit has sealed us, marked us as God's, meaning the Holy Spirit will dwell with us and will bring us all the way to glory. Now, we still have to lead our Christian life. You're not saved and immediately in glory. You lead your Christian life. You fight against sin. You put on righteousness. You take off 
uh, uncleanness, you put to death the deeds of the flesh and you grow in godliness, you spend your whole life doing that, but you know that you will arrive in glory because you're sealed. You have the promise of God. So of course your destination is secure because God himself has sworn it. Understand what Paul's saying here. The Holy Spirit is the one who will accomplish your salvation. That's, the, the, that's why it translated in the ESV at the end here, a guarantee that God has guaranteed what? That he will actually save you. How, how do you know he's actually gonna save you? Because he's given you his spirit. How do you know he's given you his spirit? Because you're being sanctified. And who's sanctifying you? Yourself? That's not sanctification. Sanctification means literally to be set apart. You're not set apart from yourself. That's impossible. The Holy Spirit sets you apart for God. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says it this way, that as you believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit sealed you as a form of promise. The sealing was a pledge that God will take you all the way to glory. The sealing of the Holy Spirit acts as a pledge, a guarantee, a promise. Commentators are quick to point out that it means more than just a guarantee the, the truthfulness of the document. It also is uh, authenticating the identity of the one who wrote it. And security is usually behind it. If you put your seal on something, there has to be something put up as a security. And you think of the mortgage. Your house is the, the security on the, the line of credit. The, your driver's license validates your identity. That's all under, under the illustration here of the seal. And when the Holy Spirit seals you, it marks you as having an, a new identity. You now belong to God because he's marked you. There's security behind you. You've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the security put up for you. That's the down payment that Jesus died bearing the wrath for your sin and you've now been purchased by him and the, the receipt, so to speak, the mark on your life that you have indeed been bought and paid for is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He does not just cause you to be born again and take his hands off of you. He causes you to be born again and dwells in you and works with you and keeps you and grows you spiritually until he takes you all the way to glory. He acts as a pledge. He acts as a promise. He acts as an authenticator of your spiritual identity because he himself is God. I was once leading a short-term missions team to the Philippines and our flight left at midnight and we checked in and we you know, double-checked the dates and all that and we were loading them like 25 or 30 high school students. I'm packing them up on a, a bus. The airport was like an hour away from where our camp was and all the bags are loaded up and I get a phone call from Korean Airlines that tells me there's been some confusion, the dateline was involved, I know you already checked in with your flight and all that, but you don't actually leave until tomorrow night. I'm like, no way, that's, that's not acceptable. Look at the kids on the bus. This is not, we're going to the airport. Okay, we will rush TSA, we're on our way. <laughs> and the person says, no, there's no room for you on the plane, we're sorry, it is our fault. So to make up for this, I will let you, next time you fly Korean Air in the future, you can buy a coach ticket and you can fly round trip in first class. I'm thinking, so you expect me to sell out a day of this mission trip so I can fly first class sometime in the future? Sold. Done. <laughs> Kids, we're going to Six Flags. Let's go. <laughs> so what are the details of this? She said, the ticket agent will be waiting for you tomorrow night at the airport. 
She'll give you a letter. Just next time you buy a coach ticket, when you come to check in, show them that letter. They'll let you in first class. Huh. Is that letter forgeable? I mean, can you make copy? <laughs> that sound, shouldn't there be like a note or something? You're like, no, it's only a letter. Our office is in Korea. Don't worry. The letter will work. I get the letter. There's like an actual, it is this embossed blue and red, like yin-yang kind of logo on it that authenticates it as being from Korean air. And it actually worked. When I use it in the future, it actually worked. And she, she tells me, she gives it to me. This is not transferable. If you lose it, it's over. And so guard this. Safety deposit box in the Philippines, that thing is guarded. <laughs> this is what the Holy Spirit does for you. He marks you as having safe passage to heaven. He gets you not just salvation by opening your eyes and giving you spiritual life. He gets you sanctification as he strives with you and causes you to grow, and he brings you to glory. Now, when you stand before God for judgment, your identity is in Christ. God sees Christ when he looks at you because you're in Christ. But how do you know you belong in Christ? Because the Spirit is the guarantee. You're going to heaven because you're in Christ, but you're in Christ because of the Holy Spirit who vouches for you being there. He himself is with you. This is how Paul says, or Peter says it in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Look, this is a very similar verse to what's in 2 Corinthians 1, so why bother putting it on the screen? Because I want you to see one word in this. That God does this, and it's the reflexive pronoun in the Greek. God does this himself. Do you see that in there? God will himself perfect you. He will himself confirm you. He will himself strengthen you. He will himself establish you. God does all of these things. How does God do this? Well, that's 2 Corinthians 1. He does it through his Holy Spirit. This is why I say this is a clear statement of the divinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Which person of the Trinity does these things, perfects you, confirms you, strengthens you, and establishes you in Christ? The Holy Spirit is the one who does these. And again, how do you know he's doing these things? Because he saved you. He's sanctifying you. Because your previous experience of salvation is trustworthy, your future experience of glorification is guaranteed. Because salvation is experienced and completed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So taken together, you understand that God initiates our salvation by drawing us to the Son through the Holy Spirit. And he causes us to be made alive. Then he seals us, guards us, indwells us. He strives with us throughout our life, sanctifying us, feeding our faith, encouraging our walk, causing spiritual growth. You even, as you grow spiritually, you even say you're producing fruit. What kind of fruit is it? It's spiritual fruit because the Holy Spirit's growing it. It's not the fruit of Jesse. It's not Jesse fruit. Jesse fruit would be rotten, <laughs> It's Holy Spirit fruit. It's spiritual fruit. This is the Spirit causing you to grow in godliness because God has put His seal on you and given His Spirit in your heart as a guarantee. And this is called the, the covenant of redemption. That before time, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit designed this plan of salvation and they implement it in time. The Father sends His Son. The Son comes and leads a sinless life and dies in your place in the cross, rises from the grave, bearing the wrath you deserve and giving you the life that you can have through faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes thousands of years later for you. You weren't even born when Jesus did these. Jesus ascends to the heavens 
and says, the Father and I, I'm praying to the Father, and we will send the Spirit to you. And then you encounter the Holy Spirit. You lost in sins and trespasses. You have your eyes open to the truth of the gospel by the work of the Holy Spirit. When you understand this, do you see how much, how many other theological issues come into sharp focus here? For example, can you lose your salvation? Well, if salvation was something that you did, of course you could lose it. I chose to follow Christ, I can just unfollow him. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Holy Spirit anointing you keeping you, guarding you, growing you, and taking you to heaven. You can't lose that. If God could lie, you could lose your salvation. What about the doctrine of election? That in the the mind of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit choose before time whom they're going to save. Of course they do. This is the the concept of this plan of redemption. They're not making this up as they go. They plan this before time, the doctrine of particular redemption. That Jesus died in an atoning way for a particular group of people. Did Jesus know whom the Spirit was going to save? Of course he did, because the three people in the Trinity are in this together. They're not operating independently of each other. The Father comes up with a plan. Jesus comes to to die on the cross and the Holy Spirit will save people, but they should have gotten their story straight first. (laughs) They're in this together. The nature of saving faith. It's not a mere decision. The nature of saving faith is one of supernatural spiritual life. It's called being born again. I know sometimes people struggle with the language covenant of redemption. The word covenant can be a a bad word, I guess. But let me swap it out for a different word that you use all the time. You always use this phrase, don't you? You tell people about the plan of salvation, right? I use that phrase all the time. I hope you do too. Let me tell you about the plan of salvation. Next time you hear that phrase, just press pause. Pause the whole world. Everybody will stop. And ask yourself, Whose plan? Whose plan of salvation? When I tell someone the plan of salvation, what plan am I talking about? Who designed this plan? Who came up with this? When did they come up with it? Before you were born, my friends, they designed this in their mind. They bring it to bear in the world. It is God who establishes us in Christ. Amen? It is God who sends his spirit into the world to anoint you. It is God who seals you as a guarantee by placing his spirit in our hearts. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't put your trust in things of this world. Don't look for security in the plans of politicians, the hope of your parents, or the trustworthiness of your children. They all change their minds. Things that they're in favor of today, they'll be opposed to tomorrow. And I'm talking about children and parents and politicians (laughs) How fickle those are in in this world. We waver and we think this is a good idea today and a different thing is a good idea tomorrow and we change our minds. It's not so with the Lord. Put your hope and your confidence in the eternal plan of salvation brought to bear in your life by God himself through the Holy Spirit. Understand that when you come to faith in Christ, you are stepping into a stream that is eternal. It goes back before time began and will take you all the way to eternity future.
When you step into the stream of salvation, you join the eternal plan of God. The Father would send His Son. The Son would take a human nature and die in your place. The Son and the Father would send the Spirit who would change your hearts, give you faith, and guide you to glory. Oh, what confidence comes from knowing that you are a partaker of the eternal nature and the eternal plan of God Himself. Lord, we're thankful that you have loved us with an everlasting love, a love that will not let us go. You have loved us with a supernatural love, a divine love that we've experienced through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As you look to how the Spirit has loved us, we see how the Son has sent Him. As you look at the life of the Son, we see how the Father has sent Him. And we see the love of which the Father had for us in His heart, that He gave us Christ. The love that Christ has for us in His heart, that He sends us the Spirit. The love that the Spirit has for us, and then He causes us to grow in love. It's a mind-blowing concept, Lord, that before you were crucified, you told your disciples it was for our benefit if you would go away. Of course, we understand that now. You would go away, but you would send us your Spirit who dwells in us, who will never leave us or forsake us, and who will bring us home to glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.